Welcome to this special uh, episode of Tez Podagogy. I'm here with Professor Rob Coe, Director of Research and Development at Evidence-Based Education, Senior Associate at the EEF, and also most people will know you still from your days at Durham, Rob, I'm guessing, uh, and all the on a Centre for Evaluation... And Monitoring. And Monitoring. I had it there in my head somewhere. I never remember what it stood for, but yeah, you got two-thirds of the way. Well done. We're there. We got some of the way there. Um, we're here talking at the World Education Summit where you've just done a, a really nice presentation about um, professional development. Um, and I'm sure there's, I've, I've tweeted it, so if listeners want to go to my Twitter, there's a, there's a nice thread of uh, a summary of what Rob yeah, said. Yeah, really good summary, actually. Well done for that. I try, I try. <laughs> but now we're uh, we're going to focus more on assessment now, which is is something you're you're known for talking on. And uh, especially in the context of COVID and over the past few months in the run up to schools coming back to some form of normality, we've, we've heard a lot about catch up and how lost learning, we need to catch up over the next few months, but we've heard quite a lot less about diagnostics about, okay, how do we, how do we work out where this learning, lost learning is, or even if it's there from your perspective, has that been quite frustrating to see that the sort of, you know, the cart before the horse, if you like. Well, it's interesting. Um, I'm not sure I'd say frustrating. I think there there are some things that are very different because of COVID, because of schools have been closed, because of the way schools are operating still. It's not um, completely back to normal, of course. Um, but I think there are a lot of things that are basically just the same as well. And so mostly I think that the thing that the sort of hot issues in assessment are the same as what the issues were before. And I really don't think that's changed very much. I think the whole notion of catch up is a really interesting one, uh, learning loss, closing a, a gap, catch up, because all of these things imply that there's some um, sort of uh, meaningful standard that maybe that's what we used to be able to do or where we would expect children to be at um, had we not had closures and a pandemic. And that somehow that's a that's a sort of okay place. If we can just get them back to that, everything will be okay. And actually, I, I think it's that that was just an arbitrary place we happened to be. That, there's nothing special about where we happen to be. And what characterizes really good schools and really good teachers is that they are they're, they're always demanding more. They have high expectations, if you like. And high expectations means that whatever um, standard you're achieving you feel and believe and work towards achieving more. You know, you want, however good it is, you want it to be even better. That's what high expectations mean. So the idea that catch up is some sort of let's get us back to where we were, um, actually I think misses that point, which is that the, the really good teachers and the really good schools weren't satisfied with where they were before. And yes, okay, children are a bit behind perhaps where they might have been had we not had a pandemic and but we still need to do the same things that we would have done which is to teach them as effectively as we can to use assessment as part of that approach and to get them to learn as much as we possibly can not just get them back to a, an arbitrary level that they you know were at before and is what, what strikes me is that we, we've sort of been taught to see um gaps in very absolute terms you know if you're fsm or you're disadvantaged then this is your educational story and it seems like we're heading that way again that we're dealing with absolutes and 
I know you've done lots of work with the EEF and, and with others about the disadvantage gap. Just how noisy is that data? I mean, just how variable is it between between children? Well, the disadvantage gaps are really important because equity and social justice are the cornerstone of, of the reason most educators are, are interested in doing what they do, teachers. It's certainly the lifeblood of organisations like the EEF. You know, that's that's what they're here for, to close that gap. Um, and that's a colossal mission, and it's a great mission, and it's really good to work in an organisation like that where people are so signed up for that, and many other organisations too. Um, so that's really, really important. But you're right, it can it can have a way of becoming a, um, a, a reality that goes beyond what's actually um, captured, if you like, in measurement. So things like free school meal status, which is the, the proxy we tend to use in England for disadvantage, well, that sometimes captures it, it sometimes doesn't. Um, one of the problems with free school meal status, or it, even now, um, since pupil premium time, I know that's quite a long time, but we tend to talk about ever FSM. So in the last six years, have you been eligible for free school meals at any point? That's about 30-odd percent of, of youngsters in schools in England. So it's quite a high proportion uh, in some ways. Um, but one of the things we do know is that within that 30%, there is a fur, much further gradation. There are some kids who have just dipped into free school meals temporarily. Um, there are some kids who, yes, their family income is quite low and they're eligible for free school meals, but actually they have a lot of other support, cultural capital and, and uh, you know, good um, social and family support. Um, and they're not really in any sense genuinely disadvantaged. And then there are some other kids who... Uh, have been on free school meals for the whole of their school career, for example. They come from families where nobody's worked for generations, where whole communities are, are um, economically really stagnant, for example. And, and, you know, if you live in the northeast of England, as I do, you're very aware of some of those communities where the pits closed in the 1960s and, and nobody has really worked since. And, and they are uh, devastating. But, I mean, they're, they're, they're great communities, but um, they're also can be quite depressing places. And if you're teaching in a school in one of those communities, I think it is very, very hard work. And that's very different from uh, how free school meals, for example, manifests in, in other kinds of um, other places and other schools. So it, it is a bit oversimplistic, but on the other hand, it's perhaps an important way to capture something that, that really does matter. It's interesting how people have reacted to the catch-up narrative in, in, in saying that you know, we, we need to be really careful with our language. This is a deficit narrative. This is, and, and yet we have been doing similar with disadvantaged children and FSM, F, children qualified for FSM for some time. So do you think it's just because it's more on people's radar? Why why the sort of disparity or, or do you think people? Yeah, I, I feel a bit torn about it because on the one hand, if it's an opportunity to galvanise efforts and investments and energy into trying to do some things that are sensible. So think things like the, the extra money that's come in for, for catch up, things like um, the, you know, the kind of things that, that Kevin Collins is talking about, all sensible, I think. National tutoring program again is a is a great idea, I think. Um, and and there seems to be new money. So it feels a bit churlish to be saying, oh, you know, it's um, it's silly to to treat this as a special case and different. If what it's doing is galvanizing a lot of effort that actually may have a, a big benefit, 
Um, but on the other hand, I think we do need to keep our focus on what is the main thing. I mean, in the, in the talk that I've just given, I, I was saying that it's everyday classroom teaching. It's the quality of teaching. And that means the expertise, the skill, the knowledge, the behaviours, the beliefs, the values of teachers. That's the thing that makes the most difference to children's learning. And the problem with that is that it, there aren't quick fixes. You know, we're talking about expertise. We're talking about the most complex job in the world and getting slightly better at it. And you think about any kind of complex task, how do you get better at it? Well, slowly and painfully and with a lot of help. And so the idea that we can just sort of produce some extra money or wave some kind of magic wand and create a better system, I think there are things we can do at the margin. So things like tutoring, targeted tutoring, yes, that, you know, that, that can have a big impact on the youngsters who are able to access that. So that's a good thing to do. But it's not a system-wide solution. I think that the system-wide solution is to really think hard about teachers' professional learning and classroom practice and, and how we build systems that help people to get just continuously get better throughout their career. On that tutoring thing, I guess it brings us to assessment. So, you know, these children have, have all come back to school and teenagers and, and there's, there's been this narrative of catch-up. And schools will have taken very different approaches to trying to find out where kids are. I mean, just on my Twitter feed, when I asked, some people were saying, well, we're just concentrating on pastoral first week because we're not going to learn anything useful until the kids are settled. Some people are saying, well, we're going to run some tests before Easter and see where they are. And some people are saying, well, this is something we're going to continually monitor across many months or even you know the rest of their school career where do you sort of stand on that sort of diagnostic side of it well um so first of all i i do think uh, that one of the jobs of a teacher is to make hard judgments about what's appropriate in a given context so if kids come in and you think right we just need some settling down time we need to focus on well-being and establishing routines and um, that should be the first priority. Then I think you have to trust your judgment on that, and, and that's right. And we, who aren't classroom teachers, need to trust the judgment of classroom teachers about that. I guess if that kind of thing went on for too long, I might start to think, well, you know, are you really sure that they're not ready to learn? And actually, one of the, the uh, I think, a good way to, to settle kids back into a routine and give them a sense of normality returning is to get back to normal teaching and learning. So. Um, I guess to the extent that I have an opinion about that, I think yeah, getting back to that kind of normal reasonably quickly is probably good for most children and most schools. As for the assessment piece, I think, again, and this is true whether we're talking about catch-up or, or assessment in general, the most important thing is the purpose. It's to be clear why you're doing an assessment uh, because I think the worst thing you can do is to invest a lot of time and energy and perhaps money in assessments that don't actually give you information you want or don't inform a, a decision that you wanted to make anyway or or to basically don't make any difference. You're not going to do anything differently as a result. So for me, the first question is what, what decision or action or choice depends on the results of this assessment? So if I'm in a classroom and I'm using a, a hinge question or something like that, mid-lesson, that's a form of assessment. And I, I hopefully I'm really clear what it is I'm going to do differently. If they answer this question correctly, I'm going to get, move on. And if they don't, I'm going to go back or, or something like that. So there's a decision and I'm very clear what that decision is and I'm very clear what information it depends on. Whether that's a, a good uh, basis for a decision or not, well, we can talk about that, but at least it's clear. 
So if I'm giving a sort of generic standardized test, let's say, of, of reading, let's say if it was a, a primary school reading test or something like that, year four reading, maybe. Um, why am I doing that? What am I going to do if I find that the whole cohort is behind where they were last year? Do I, you know, if there's nothing that I'm going to do differently, yeah. depending on the results that I get, then don't bother doing it. If I'm going to find that some individual children are, are further behind than others, you know, am I going to do something about that? I'm going to, have I got a, a program that I can uh, use perhaps involving uh, taking those kids out of lessons with a, a trained teaching assistant or something like that? Perhaps they're the ones that I'm going to look to involve in the national tutoring program. Perhaps there are other kinds of targeted support. So if I've got those options in mind, then I think doing that, that kind of, um, uh, high level assessment, if you like, an overall assessment of, of reading as a, a general thing, then that might be appropriate. Um, otherwise, I, I generally speaking for classroom practice, for most classroom decisions, I need a much more granular assessment of the actual ideas and topics and skills um, much more specifically, you know, have they forgotten? Yes. So before um, before the schools closed down or before those children weren't in school, they, you know, they could all do this three column subtraction. And now uh, we get back to school and they've mostly forgotten it. That an assessment could tell me that they can't do this anymore, but I know they could do it before. So Hopefully, it's just about reminding them and, and sort of brushing up that skill, which if you haven't done it for three months, you will have forgotten. Of course, you will. So that's a much more granular, much more um, diagnostic, if you like, level of information, which, again, leads to a choice, a, a decision. And I think as long as people are clear what the decision is they want to make and how that decision is influenced by the information that they hope they'll get from an assessment, then they're kind of through the hardest bit in a way and, and then the challenge is just to design an assessment or, or use or select an assessment that will in fact give you that information you want but if you're not clear about what information you want then there's no way you're going to succeed it's interesting what you're saying about that 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 continual monitoring because rob webster wrote us a piece that you're a colleague of yours at the eef um for some stuff and he said he said the worst thing you can do is make a judgment and and live sit on it you know the, it, it has to be fluid and you know there's some you know if this intervention's not working why you know finding out why again like you said before i mean is that a continual thing i mean is there be any idea about you know should we be should this be an informal assessment from teachers ongoing or, or do we have to sit you know, have a more formal assessment in mind monthly or termly or half termly? Yeah, again, I think uh, I mean, I think if you look at what teachers do, there's a there's a whole wide range, a spectrum of different kinds of assessments on different kinds of timescales. And I think sometimes people separate those into summative and formative. Personally, I'm not a big fan of that distinction because I think they're quite blurred and um, for me, it's about the different purposes that you want to use it for. So the different kinds of decisions, if you like, that it could inform. Some of those decisions are more high level, uh, generic, like, you know, an assessment of overall mathematics, let's say, or geography. Some of them are much more granular. So it might be people's knowledge about this specific aspect of, uh, you know, this case study on urbanization or something like that. So that's, um, that's one dimension, if you like. There's another dimension about the sort of time scale on which your, your action. So is it an immediate action in the lesson where I'm going to change my practice or is it a longer term? Uh, I might do something about thinking about how I support this class more generally with their literacy, let's say. 
Um, so those are uh, different kinds of decisions. Um, but I, I really think that the key thing is to be clear what the decision is you want to make or need to make, what the choice is, and then to make sure that the assessment you use is fit for that purpose. Uh, and I agree, there's no point in doing an assessment that you then don't act on because you wasted everyone's time and energy and um, uh, you didn't need to do that. It didn't add any value to the process. So be clear, first of all, what that decision is and then choose or, or design an assessment that, that meets that need. And, you know, informal assessment, you can't not do that. If you're just in a room with children and you're explaining an idea, you're looking around at their faces and you're seeing if they look puzzled, that's a kind of assessment. You know, you can see, well, they haven't quite understood this or every question you ask them, the answers they give, give you some insights into what they're thinking. And that's a kind of assessment um, so that's right at sort of one end of informality, um, but also regularity. You're doing that almost, you know, every every few minutes, probably in a lesson, maybe more often than that. And then at the other end would be the sort of annual end of year summative type assessment where you want a review of all the learning that's happened that year in a, in a given subject or curriculum area. Um, and that's much more formalized. So that's uh, that's a quite a different kind of thing. But they're they're all essentially on the spectrum, I think, of, of different kinds of assessment for different purposes. And picking up on your your presentation just then about teacher expertise, obviously there's gonna to need to be some training or some CPD around assessment, but also where it becomes the interventions. I mean, do we need to wait until we've got the right people to do those interventions with the right level of training? Or you know, let's say a problem's identified that that school hasn't necessarily um, come across into this scale, for example, or the best way to use tutoring is another example, like how do we select those kids and how do we form this tutoring to work? Can we just get started or do we need to wait and say, hang on, let's, let's make sure we've got it right here? Because there's going to be a real pressure to rush into this, I think. Yes, I think that's right. And it's a difficult one because if you if you rush in too much without thinking carefully or having the, the requisite skills and expertise in place, then you might uh, expend a lot of time and energy doing the wrong things that aren't effective. But on the other hand, if you wait too long, you could also uh, do harm by, by inaction. So that's a really hard trade-off, I think. Um, and and the, yes, I think, broadly speaking, I would say that Building expertise around assessment is a good thing and, and we could do more of that. You know, it's not to say that the existing expertise is inadequate or anything, you know, again, not, not a deficit model. I don't think that's really helpful, but would it be advantageous for more people to have more of these skills, for those skills to be more widely distributed? Yes, I think in general it would, because although what I've said is sounds quite simple, be clear about the decisions you want to make and the purpose of assessment and then design or select assessments that do that, that's actually quite the details, the technical knowledge required is um, there's, there's quite a lot of expertise really to do that well. The difference between just doing it and doing it well is is quite big, I think. So yes, that kind of expertise. But the thing about um, teaching and education is that you can't ever wait you can't say, oh, well, we haven't got, uh, you know, the evidence isn't clear about what's going to work, so we're not going to do anything. No, no one ever say that. You've got kids in front of you. That's their only chance to go through school. You know, they've had this experience of the pandemic being at home. You have to do something with them. So you you give it your best guess. You, you, what you hope is likely to be the best thing. 
And uh, maybe it isn't ideal. Maybe if you had more skills, more resources, more time, you could have done better. But that often isn't the choice. Actually, you've got to do something now and you've got to do the best you can. So I think it's really important that we don't let those, if you like, those longer term requirements that we need to build more skill. We need to think about professional learning um, in a, a more productive way or slightly differently, perhaps. Um, all of those are important, but they're not a reason not to act now. But the key thing is that we act, we as well as having to act now in the, the immediate to address immediate concerns, we also try to make sure that we're building up those longer term resources and, and skills and effectiveness so that we're not constantly in this position of saying, well, if only we had uh, more skill, more resource, more knowledge, more um, you know, better expertise in the system. The reason we don't have that now, if we think we don't, is because we didn't act six months, one year, five years, 10 years ago to try and build that. So let's think about where we'll be in, in six months, one year, five years, 10 years time from now and make sure we're doing everything we can to make that system as good as it can be for the people who follow. Yeah, and I guess my, my last question is a, is a big one, and I apologise for asking it, but I, should, I have to. Um, it's always this case where people say, how, how accurate is assessment because of the noise of pastoral data, if you like? You know, you know if these children have been traumatised by COVID, at what point do we get an accurate level of their understanding or their learning? And that's a question that goes back, you know, through GCSEs and everything else. You know, if someone's anxious, is the GCSE a fair reflection of them? How do we how do we sort of sort that out in the next few months? Yeah, well, so underpinning that are a whole lot of really difficult issues and, and complex issues actually about essentially about making assessment valid. But assessment needs to tell us something that helps us to to either inform or, or make us uh, make a decision. And it's really important that it tells us what it what we think it tells us, and that's really the, the core of, of the issue of validity. And there's a whole lot of technical knowledge about that. So that's one of the reasons why I think studying assessment explicitly and learning about issues like validity is really important because things like anxiety or um, you know other kinds of uh, confounds, if you like, can interfere with how well somebody does on a particular assessment. And we could misinterpret that as thinking, oh, they don't understand these ideas when actually, yeah, they understand them perfectly well. They just um, uh, didn't do well on that particular assessment. So, um, and, and then also, if we're worried about that, in the way we design and deliver assessments, we can try and minimize those effects. So we can uh, do things to make anxiety less and certainly to make it have less of an impact on on test outcomes, for example. So there's quite a lot we can do there. But again, it requires uh, a lot of expertise to do that well. And, and that's expertise that has to be learned. I don't think you pick that up on the job. I think that's one of the things people say about assessment. You know, well, I'm a teacher. I've been teaching for how many years? I do a lot of assessment. I know all about it. Um, and I I think my view is that the you, you learn certain things by doing it. But there's a lot of expertise you'd never pick up just by doing it, which you have to be explicitly taught, I think, uh, or explicitly study and learn outside of practice. So there's more to it than just just what you know from doing it, I'd say definitely. Um, so, uh, and yes, there's a, people are talking about, well, this is an opportunity to rethink how we do assessment. You know, maybe the, the stress of uh, terminal exams is something that we could live without. We've lived without it for 
for two two sessions now at GCSE and A level, doesn't that prove that we could manage without? I mean, I I definitely think the way we do assessment and the way we do qualifications in England could be improved. I've been saying that for many years. Um, I think we have to be careful about using a, a pandemic as a as a sort of um, you know a knee jerk. We, we've got to kind of reform everything we do. Uh, but on the other hand, as I've said just a moment ago, if that if that gives us some momentum and opportunity to rethink and change, then maybe that's good to use that. And uh, the key thing is that if we make changes, we need to be clear that they're improvements. And one of the things about assessment and qualifications is that it's such a complex landscape. You you think you're you're improving one aspect of it, you find that something else has uh, had some unexpected or unpredictable. Um, side effect that you, you didn't anticipate and has actually made things worse. And that's particularly the case, I think, when accountability is so bound up with it. So one of the problems I think we, uh, one of the mistakes we can make when we talk about assessment is not thinking hard enough about the context of accountability because solving assessment problems is hard enough, but solving assessment problems in a context of high stakes uh, school accountability that brings a whole lot of other pressures and a whole lot of other constraints and makes the whole thing much more difficult, much much more unpredictable in some ways as well. I think that's a, a useful warning in going into this summer period when those calls are probably going to be heightened is that, you know, a bit like you said about professional de- development and assessment, what are we trying to achieve? And so if we are going to make changes to assessment, you know, what, what's the outcome? Let's have a look. <laughs> Which problem do we think this change is going to improve? Um, and let's be clear what those trade-offs are. So there is no perfect solution to any of these. There's no uh, problem-free version of a, of a model that, that uh, ticks every box that we want and doesn't tick any of the boxes we don't want. There, there are always trade-offs. And there are always a lot of, I think, quite hard to predict um, fallout from, from these kinds of things. So let's think carefully about those before we rush into... I've seen no end of of people suggesting changes we should make where it's not at all clear to me what problem they think that's going to solve. You know, they they think we should do less of one kind of assessment and more of another, and they present that as being a solution to some uh, vaguely stated problem, but it it doesn't actually solve that problem, and they're just using that to advocate something that they perhaps would have advocated anyway. It It doesn't address the problem that they've identified. Rob, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.